Good morning. Um, our scripture this morning comes from the book of Acts, and uh, early in the chapter 4, uh, there's a story that uh, Bob will be preaching on. Um, I'll be reading from verse 23 on to 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Well, school's out and a bunch of people left. And summer school hadn't started, so a bunch of them aren't back. And I'm missing my college posse up here on the front row. Most of you don't know it, but there's a group of guys that would come up here and sit right on the front row with me, and it was really encouraging. Uh, I noticed the last few Sundays they weren't sitting there, and I don't know if I said something to offend them or they just got tired of being spit on from the first row. But this row's really safe because there's nobody in it. Uh, Sam and Patty are just a little further back, so they're safe, and I'm going to stay right here and preach from the floor. Title of my sermon this morning is Trusting God Completely. And there's nothing that destroys a good sermon better or more than saying, I don't want you to take this too seriously. But I don't want you to take this too seriously. No, seriously, I do want you to take it seriously, but not too seriously. Seriously, what am I talking about? This is it. Every time I preach about something along these lines, trusting God, launching out, having faith, the list goes on. I always worry that somebody's going to take it over the top. And instead of trusting God completely, they're just going to be stupid. You know what I mean? Because there's a difference between trusting God completely and just being foolish. Right? Trusting God completely is Moses leading the people across a vast wilderness that could kill them because he'd encountered God at a burning bush and he had implemented by God's power ten mighty plagues on the largest nation in the world. That's trusting God completely. Acting foolishly is sort of like me going on a hike at Yosemite National Forest with my family and then trying to convince them that I'm a really brave dad by diving off one of those waterfalls. That's just stupid. That's just foolish. 
Sometimes, honestly, folks, you know it to be true. Sometimes we do really dumb things and then we blame it on God. Yeah? And we say, I'm completely trusting God. And the rest of the people in the room are saying, no, you're trusting yourself and you're acting like an idiot. So, I told you it's a bad way to start a sermon. So, here's what I want to suggest. When you feel like God is calling you to something, to trust Him completely and unconditionally, and it seems kind of radical, don't just go do it. That's what the body of Christ is all about. You sit down with others that you trust and believe in their confidence and wisdom in God. And you say, I feel like God wants me to trust Him in this area. What do you think? That's complete trust as apart from foolishness. Now, to the sermon. This is a wonderful example, this episode, of people completely trusting God. You heard what happened. Peter and John gathered with the people after an episode. What was the episode? Here was the episode. Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray. They did it every day. They were praying. They were just being faithful. And on their way to the temple, an ordinary day, an ordinary walk, an ordinary time of prayer, they encounter a beggar, someone who's lame from birth. And this would not have been the first time. All around Solomon's colonnade, there were always people begging for money because they had some sort of physical ailment. And they were begging for healing. Peter and John encountered this man who basically begged for help. And Peter looked at him and he said, I have something to tell you. I don't have any silver or gold. Had he been wearing pants, he probably would have done this. Nothing there. I've got none of that. But what I do have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. The man not only stood up and walked, he stood up and he started shouting and running and leaping and dancing and praising God. Now this is a crowded place and everybody sees the miracle firsthand and all the people are amazed. And the text puts it this way, it says that this man just clung to them. It's like he grabbed a hold of their cloak and he wouldn't let go because, after all, he had just received healing from these people and he didn't want to get apart from them at all. He wanted to be as close to the power as he possibly could, the power that transformed his life, and he's hanging on to them for dear life. You see the image. And all the people are standing around watching. And finally, they gather around Peter and John and they say, what on earth just happened? You can imagine the amazement on their face. And Peter looks at them, and as usual, he takes an opportunity to preach. And he says, why are you looking at me? As if by some power of my own, I have the ability to do this. I don't. Put it another way, these are ordinary hands. Nothing powerful about them. This is because of Jesus Christ that this man stands before you whole. And then he launched into a sermon. 
Well, that didn't end well because the authorities, the religious authorities, were very stirred up by the people being stirred up. The captain of the guard was probably given orders to arrest them. He arrested them and pulled them in front of the Sanhedrin, a group of about 71, according to the uh, history we have, of men selected from among the elders and the leaders of Jerusalem to judicate things. If there were problems, you'd go before the Sanhedrin court. And the high priest was the one who took care of the Sanhedrin court. And so they pulled Peter and John into the court and they said, here's what we want to know. By what power, authority, or name did you do these miracles? Do you notice they didn't say, was that hocus pocus? They didn't say, we heard you did some pretty cool things, but we don't believe it. They knew it to be true. The people were all around. The man was standing in front of them. They went to work there every day. And they knew the man. So they said, this is rather unbelievable. How would you do it? Now, if I'd have been Peter, I would have deflected the question. I, I wouldn't have answered it directly. I would have started in my defense something like this. Are you accusing me of being a bad guy because I actually healed somebody? Are you telling me that you want to bring me into prison because I'm doing good? I, that's where I would have gone. I know it. I know myself. And Peter didn't. <laughs> he just said, it's Jesus. He did it. We spoke. His power. His authority. And for a defense, that was the wrong thing to say. Because it got him in all kinds of trouble. And not only did he just say that, he just lost control. He completely lost it. He said not only did Jesus do it, but Jesus was also raised from the dead by the power of God. And not only was he raised from the dead by the power of God, he was raised from the dead by the power of God because you killed him. Otherwise he wouldn't have been dead. And his blood is on your hands. I told you he was losing it. This is not a very good defense. And he goes on to say, but listen to me, friends. All you people who are responsible for his death. You really didn't have any idea what you were doing. You thought you did. And here's what you tried to do. You tried to kill the King of glory, the Messiah of God, God himself. And it didn't work. And you were only doing what God had designed in advance for you to do. And the death that you participated in, the blood that's on your hands is the blood that redeems you. You did the killing. And his blood saves you. The one you crucified is standing there with open hands and saying, come to me. Is that an incredible story or what? I mean, it's our story, but we forget how powerful and ridiculous it is. 
that God allowed God in the flesh to die at the hands of wicked men. And it is their wicked hands that produced the death that gave eternal life to the ones who slayed him. That's incredible. You couldn't write that kind of story. Well, you might expect that the religious authorities are a little entrenched in what they believe and in their power structures, and they were not pleased, and they didn't fall down and confess the name of Jesus. Peter and John were uh, let go. And the authorities basically did this. They said to themselves, this is background, right? I mean, it's not in the text. They said to themselves, what should we do with these guys? If we beat them, we're in big trouble. Then the crowd will turn on us. If we kill them, really bad thing to do. We did that one time. The guy came back from the dead. Let's not do that again. (laughs) So here's what we'll do. We'll just tell them, get out and shut up. Get out of our sight and keep your mouth shut about Jesus. And they said, absolutely, we can do that. Of course they didn't. They just said, thank you very much, walked out. And started proclaiming Jesus. More particularly, what they did is they walked out and they went to their brothers and sisters who were gathered apparently in a house. And they reported everything that had happened uh, with the council. And then they prayed. I know we read it already, but can I read it again? When all those who were gathered there heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. I don't know if all of them at once or one was leading, the others were praying silently, but they raised their voices in prayer to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You made it all, God. All life exists because of you. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through your servant David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain and the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one? God, you said this through the prophet David and now we're seeing the evidence of it right here. This is Messiah. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and smite them. They didn't say that. That's a trick. Stretch out your hand and heal. And provide signs and wonders and perform miracles through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Can I fill in the gap? God, do what you always do. Draw people to yourself and heal them. Even the enemies you taught us to pray for, heal them. And afterward, the place where they were was shaken and they 
were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak boldly. That's an incredible story. Um, and I want to just give you a few comments that I'm calling insights for Christian living then and now that come from this story. And the first one is this, just simply, just because it fits on the screen, very short, a common circumstance. That's what you see here as an insight for Christian living. What is the common circumstance? Persecution. See, Jesus had already told them in advance, this is going to happen to you. He told them on a couple of different occasions, but especially in Mark's gospel, chapter 13, verses 9 through 11, look at it sometime. He said, listen to how similar it is to what they're experiencing, what they would experience in the future. You'll be delivered to councils. You will be beaten for my name. You'll stand before governors and kings. Thank the apostle Paul, okay? But don't worry about any of that now. Why? Because I'm going to be with you. And whenever it happens, I'll give you the words to speak. It's going to be a common occurrence, my friends. That'll be your life. It was their life. Every one of them but John lost their life and these kind of common occurrences. Then and now, my friends, we have to believe this. In order to be mature followers of Jesus Christ, that to serve Jesus Christ means we will experience persecution. Maybe not like this, but persecution all the same. It's what you sign up for. When you say, I'm going to take up my cross and follow you, Jesus, you say, I'm going to walk into wherever you lead me, Jesus. And I'm going to do good. If I have the power to heal, I'm going to heal. If I have the opportunity to speak, I'm going to speak. And on occasions when I speak or when I heal or when I do good, there's going to be people who are going to hate me for it. They're going to hate me just because I'm following Jesus. It will happen if it hasn't already happened to you. And my friends, in this cushy world that we live in, let us not forget it's happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world right now. It's a common occurrence. It's called following Jesus. Second thing I see in this as a, an insight for Christian living then and now is this. It, what you see here is an opportunity to practice. Or let me put it another way. The disciples almost immediately had an opportunity to practice what they preached. How do I say that? Why do I say that? Because when Peter and John stood up on two of those occasions, before the Sanhedrin and with all the crowd, they proclaimed Jesus as the way to God. They said, in effect, you guys are in big trouble because you killed your only hope. The only one who can redeem you is the one you nailed to a cross. That's pretty dark when you kill your only hope. They said, here's the truth. 
you must rely on Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. Let me fill in the gap. You can't do it on your own. You can't be righteous enough. You can't earn credit before God so that you can be with God for all eternity. Your only hope lies in the crucified Messiah. You've got to trust him completely. Now get this sudden turn of events. After they're dismissed from prison, they're isolated in what probably was a tiny house, and they gather together, and they acknowledge what they just preached. Sovereign Lord of the universe, we got nothing. Our backs are to the wall. We have no power. 5,000 to 5 million. That's them and this is us. And now, Sovereign Lord, we are trusting you completely. We got nothing else, Lord. They were given an opportunity almost immediately to practice what they preached. Complete reliance upon God. Sometimes I hate my job. Because I preach. And then I have to practice it. And sometimes you'll hate your witness. Because you'll have to tell the good news. And then you'll have to practice it. Oh, maybe hate's a little harsh of a word. But you, you understand what I mean. When you speak the good news, be careful. You'll get the opportunity to exercise it. Third point, what we find in this story, which is um, insight for Christian living then and now, is a dramatic contrast. See, they were in the midst of some serious difficulties. (laughs) Overpowering odds. Millions and millions of people. And they were a tiny, tiny minority. You think you're a minority as a Christian? You have no idea. These people were a minority. The only ones around were the ones that were standing with them, and that wasn't too many compared to the millions and millions in the Roman Empire and the rest of the globe. And here's the dramatic contrast that they encountered. You know what basically they did? They stepped into the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, and they started praying the Psalms. Why do I say that? Because if you take a look at the Psalms, the Psalms routinely glorify the magnitude and almighty nature of God above everything. Right? The psalmist do it all the time. The psalmist say, you're greater than everything around us on this earth. You're greater than our circumstances. You're greater than the other gods of Canaan. By the way, they didn't say there were not other gods. They said there are other gods that people are walking after. There are principalities and powers. And you're greater than those principalities and power. And you're greater than the forces of nature, which are completely outside of our control. You are the omnipotent creator, sustainer of the universe. That's a contrast, my friends to your petty little circumstances, and to my petty little persecution. It's a contrast to the power brokers in our world who want to squash us sometimes when we just speak in the name of Jesus. They recognized the contrast, and they worshiped God because of it. By the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed how many of our songs come out of the Psalms. 
I hear it all the time, phrases, and I, and I recognize the phrases because I try to read the Psalms daily. And I thought, oh, that's Psalm such and such and Psalm such and such, just little phrases. And the reason they're coming out of the Psalms is because the psalmist seemed to know better than any of us that you have to glorify God and lift your eyes above your circumstances and focus on His almighty nature in order that your circumstances and your nature become tiny, tiny in His sight. We, we've got to do that, friends, in order to keep a vibrant faith. And you know what that means by contrast? It means that we don't think about ourselves all the time. It, does, it means we don't talk about ourselves all the time. It means we shouldn't create songs about ourselves and our feelings all the time. It means we should magnify God over and over and over again. And it means we've got to do that in worship because it refocuses our reality. And it helps us to understand there's a dramatic contrast going on here that we need to recognize. Uh, number four, I see in this story a parallel reality. What I mean is this, the disciples were realists. They looked at their world, they knew history. They saw the facts. They saw the power brokers. They knew they were in trouble. But what they acknowledged in that prayer was an invisible, let me say it again, an invisible reality of the power of God. They couldn't see God in the reality that was in front of them. They could only trust God in the reality that was in front of them. They could see history just like the rest of us. But they believed, like many theologians would like to say, they believed in the superintendence of God over history. They didn't discount history. And neither should we as Christians. We look around our world and we see cause and effect. We see historical events happening. We see things that are good and we see things that are bad. And behind it all, what we cannot see is the invisible hand of God that manipulates, orchestrates all things according to His purposes. And how do they come to that conclusion? They come to that conclusion because they saw Jesus. And that's what Peter said. What you planned to do as wicked men was only part of the plan of God. He will take your evil and he will resurrect it for good. He will take the wrath of men and he will praise his name with it. He will take your brutalization of us and other Christians around the world and he will plant his church and he'll grow his church because God's in charge of everything, including the facts of history. That is really a wonderful thought, isn't it? Because sometimes the facts of history just seem pretty dark. But God's in charge of it all. I've used this image before, but let me use it again. I love the poets of the Bible. And when I speak of the poets of the Bible, I'm probably primarily speaking about the psalmists and the ones who wrote the Proverbs. On one occasion, one of those poets put it this way. He said, the heart of the king, the most mighty man in your area, the heart of the king is like water in the hands of God. He directs it however he chooses it and makes it his own river of history. That's what God does with human affairs. 
And we've got to trust that he does it. Uh, there's a final thing. The final thing is, is a prayer for today. And it's the one they prayed. Modify it for yourself. I, I'm making a commitment to you. It's going to be a new prayer of mine. For me, but more importantly for you. I want to pray it over our church. I want to daily say, oh God, you're the sovereign Lord of the universe. And our times as a church are completely in your hands. Oh God, I can't always see your hand at work because you're invisible. But I know through every circumstance that you take your church through. You're building your kingdom. Help me to believe it. And oh God, for these people who walk with me, help them to embrace that reality as well. Why? Because the enemy is not just always a threat from without. It's frequently a threat from within. Because we're sinful. We need God to protect us, not just from the evil from without, but the evil from within. We need God to protect our hearts and give us courage when we lack it. We need God to give us faith when we doubt. Oh God, sovereign Lord of the universe, invisible sustainer of all things, protect and grow our church. Um, you know I love hymns. Um, and while I was working on this sermon this week, from the first day I cracked it open and started thinking about it, the words of Martin Luther's great hymn just kept going around in my mind. Couldn't get them out. So I couldn't think of a better way to end this sermon than with those words. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he will win the battle. And though this world with devils fill should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life 
also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do you want real meaning? Real meaning in your life? Then completely surrender to the God of the universe who revealed himself in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. Place your hands completely in his care. Follow him unconditionally, and you'll be part of an eternal kingdom. There's no way to have a deeper meaning. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word and for the stories of your word and, and the people in it. We thank you that they were so much like us. Well, we read these stories and sometimes we think they weren't. Nobody's throwing down miracles like this, it doesn't seem today. But we know a lot of other things about them. We know that they were sinful. We know that on occasion, a number of them, the chief apostles denied you. We know that they were filled with doubt concerning you. And we know that they were filled with self-doubt concerning what you could do with them. They were like us, Lord. And you called them. And like us with limited amounts of talents and resources, they committed themselves to you. They completely trusted you. And we want to do the same. We don't want you to take us out of this world and protect us from all harm. We just want you to protect us from the evil one. We want you to protect our souls so that our singular devotion can be to you and we can find truly your eternal kingdom and to share your incredible good news in this world that needs it so much. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.